when looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up? Excuse me while I whip this out. Oh, gnarly! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. I knew it, I'm surrounded by assholes. And good evening, friend. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out. To contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. Now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope want to jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while in Sail Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS.
Hi, I'm Alexandra Paul, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. All right, folks, uh, most remember this guest on the phone, and yes, you could probably tell by the musical bed that's underneath, but most remember her as a strong, hard-working lifeguard on Baywatch, Lieutenant Stephanie Holden, but also, since we have a lot of horror fans that listen to this show, also remember her from the movie Christine. Miss <laughs> Alexandria Paul, how are you? I'm fine. It's Alexandra, Paul, not Alexandria. I just want to make sure. Alexandra. <laughs> they, they don't look Sorry. up the Alexandria because there must be one somewhere. <laughs> yes. So, uh, obviously, things have been not everywhere for everybody. So, how have you been handling things with this whole lockdown and COVID, up, open, closed, you know? We don't know where we're going day to day. That's right. Well, I live in Los Angeles, um, and we all wear our masks uh, every time we go outside, and we're not allowed into stores without masks. And I think, uh, and so I'm following that um, diligently. And um, but the the last uh, what has it been four 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 months? Um, I've I've felt very fortunate because I live with a man I adore. My husband, uh, we've been together 25 years, and it's been great being being able to spend more time with him and being with our two cats. So, and we live in a lovely place in Los Angeles. So we feel very lucky. The two of you haven't driven each other nuts yet. Oh no, far from it. Well, that's good, but, you know, I'm, I want to start off with some real-life stuff going on because, obviously, I know you try to be a very vocal person with your platform, on several different platforms at least. I know you uh, have been doing a lot of charity work for homeless with COVID as far as providing food and whatnot. What are you doing with that, and is there an organization behind you with that? Yeah, I volunteer for Food Not Bombs, which is a nonprofit started on the East Coast actually in the 70s and now has 600 chapters worldwide. And we, um, we collect food for, that would otherwise be thrown away or composted from uh, grocery stores and food banks. Um, and we feed anybody who's hungry. Um, that's typically, uh, our, our chapter typically feeds homeless folks, not as many families, mostly because we serve a meal at 8.30 at night. So um, we feed on Thursday nights a really healthy, hot, vegan meal um, with pasta and soup and salad and potatoes and vegetables and a sandwich and uh, fruit and dessert and sometimes a um, Sometimes, you know, a little extra stuff, but we always have at least that. And it's all done on a volunteer basis from food picked up from either farmer's markets, um, uh, grocery stores, or uh, the food bank. Well, that's good. And uh, I'm guessing your response has been very much appreciated and everything else. What's happened with we <clears throat> with the homeless and those of us who live in houses, we don't quite understand, but... If you can't go into a coffee shop to charge your phone or a library to, 
use the bathroom, uh, sit down out, uh, you know, get away from the elements, uh, get a drink of water even. It's very hard to get water because they've shut down water fountains and there aren't many water fountains anyway from compared to when I was a kid. But yeah. so just something as simple as getting water is really hard now uh, when you're homeless, not to mention, um, you know, facilities like toilets or um, uh, just getting food or being able to be away from the elements because basically if you're homeless, you're outside now. There's no respite. Um, but L.A. has been doing a good job of trying to house, to put um, people who are on the streets into trailers or hotel rooms. And they okay. made a goal, I think, of putting 18,000 people, and they've been able to put half that in hotel rooms or motorhomes or tents. The, I think the limiting factor, I think, is the amount of, um, of staff to monitor it not so much the lack of rooms and things. Um, I do know somebody who is in a hotel room, and he actually um, is, you know, he has a bed for the first time in a long time. He did say that being outdoors 24-7 was the hardest thing uh, of with COVID. Uh, and it's got to be scary enough to be on the streets and outdoors without COVID and everything else going on. Right, exactly. Yeah, depending on where you're at. Is there a website for them uh, if people want to check out Food Not Bombs? It's, uh, yeah, the, uh, the headquarters is foodnotbombs.net. So it's Food Not Bombs. A lot of people think, oh, that's such a weird name, but it was actually started in the 70s by a group of people who wanted money to be allocated to people for food and not allocated to bombs, war, yeah. the war machine, et cetera. So, yeah, it makes sense, kind of though. Yeah. Hey, no, yeah, especially the time frame, like you said, with the 70s and everything else like that. One of yeah. the things I found interesting when doing my homework for this interview was your TED Talk. And it's an interesting topic of overpopulation. I'm not smart enough to, you know, have the numbers off the top of my head and everything else like that. But I found it interesting that this is one of your key things that you're very vocal about. What really got your interest in studying this topic? I'm very concerned about the number of people on the planet. And since, uh, gosh, since the early 90s, I have been speaking on the topic. Um, <laughs> and what got me started was when I was a kid and, I would, I grew up in the seventies, so there were a lot of commercials of starving people in different countries. And I really, because I got, I understood the, the concept of overpopulation of deer, for example, and if there were too many deer in Connecticut where I grew up and a lot of deer would starve, it kind of made sense to me that there could be too many people on the planet too, and then there wouldn't be enough resources for everyone. And so that's when I decided, actually when I was a kid, decided not to have any children of my own because I was concerned about the number of people on the planet. And when I speak, I, I talk about how I'm 50, I'm going to be 57 next week, 57 years old, and in my lifetime, the world population has more than doubled on the planet. And my mom, who's 84, the world population has almost quadrupled since she was born. It was 2 billion when she was born, and we're now almost at 8 billion. Obviously, 
your TED Talk was, I believe, 2013. And the number you mentioned that you'd like to see the population go to was back down to 2 billion people. Is that, like I said, without having the proper education on the facts and figures and elements and that you would incorporate with something like that, do you see something like that doable still with the amount just how things work as we stand right now? Well, we have a population, as I said, of almost 8 billion. The United Nations feels like if we continue on this same trajectory, we will reach about 11 billion at the end of this century. That's only in 80 years. Um, so a lot of people uh, with children, their children will be alive at the time, and there'll be 11 billion people on the planet. I think it kind of just makes sense that, that the quality of life for those 11 billion will be will be pretty tough, especially with climate change making it harder to find um, areas to live because as we know already weather issues are um, in, in some islands have had to be evacuated because the sea level has risen so there will be there will be fewer land uh, for people to live yet so many more people so it, it's really crucial that we start looking at ways to um, live on this earth with a smaller number of people. And when I say um, to about 2 billion, that's the number that um, scientists have calculated that the everybody on earth could live with a high quality of living, not as wasteful as Americans, but about the um, standard of living as those in Europe. So it's a very nice standard of living as someone who has an English mother and who lived in Europe when I was a kid. They live really well. They just don't waste as, as much as we Americans. So 2 billion people could live as Europeans do on this planet um, uh, without ruining nature or um, uh, running out of resources. So that's that's a calculation. It's just a math issue. To get yeah. down there, it's all about. It's not about people will people will joke and say, "Oh, you just want to <laughs> you just want to get rid of people." And no, I don't want to. I want people to have great quality of life. And, and really, what it comes down to is people having fewer children per couple. And and the number is really ideally is if on average we can have one child per couple then the population will go down to 2 billion in about 110 years. So it'll okay, take a so. long time. It's not going to happen really precipitously. And I know there's also, interestingly, a lot of um, doomsday people saying, oh, it's, you can't have the population go down because then, you know, we'll, how will the economy work? And, I, you know, I'm not an economist, so I can't answer that. But what I do know is that if you have 11 billion people on the planet – we now can't feed or house or properly educate everybody and and have a lot of nature as you know we're losing our nature and we're at 8 billion so how are we going to look at 11 billion um and so that's it's it really is it just makes common sense and it's really about loving people that i i am a population person um, because I want everybody to have a great quality of life, especially and your the, children and grandchildren. Yes. <laughs> yes. Going to move on to the fun stuff with the entertainment and all in a second. But the one thing I did hear you bring up on this TED Talk that I found interesting, and 
obviously it can be a hot-button topic in any format, was, as far as the population goes, educating our young folks and just everybody, I think, on birth control and stuff. Now, are you looking at within the school systems, like some do, or is it the parents? Where, where are we starting this education process? Actually, the number one way to lower the world population in a humane manner, because nobody wants to lower the population um, through inhumane means like war or exactly. running out of resources or famine or, as we're experiencing now, um, some kind of pandemic. Nobody wants that. So the interesting thing is all the side effects of, of having smaller families, all the, the, uh, the ways you get to have, have smaller families are actually – the humane ways, because I'm not about coercion either, no forcing people, none of that. None of that's going to work right. because you need to um, educate people on the benefits of having smaller families because we've been so inculcated with this idea that we have to have large families um, for to be happy. And really it's a biological thing that we have to have large families to, to survive as a species. And now because of the situation that we were so successful at – um, procreating, we need to actually have smaller families to survive as a species. Um, in terms of education, uh, the, the number one way to lower family size in a human, actually the best way, humane or not, but it is humane, is to educate girls and empower women. Because educated girls, girls who get, um, get to stay in school past secondary school, um, they will be less likely to just become baby-making machines, and they will choose to have careers and a family, which means they will have fewer kids. They will feel more empowered to choose birth control when maybe the the man might not, the husband might not want to have um, to use birth control because he doesn't have to raise the kids in, in a lot of cultures. So yeah, exactly. educating girls is educating them with math, in, you know, math, languages, science, history, all that is what I mean by educating. Birth control is part of the equation, but interestingly, it's not, it's not as important as educating girls and empowering women. Um, so yes, birth control, um, you know, I'm for birth control to be made available so that people don't um yeah so young people too don't have babies to me that's 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 scarier a uh, 14 year old having a baby is scarier to me than a 14 year old on birth control they're both exactly. having sex <laughs> so, yes you know <laughs> but we're not suggesting 14 year olds to have sex but if you're going to smart sex or play smart your kids birth control, condoms, all that stuff. But that's not why we're here. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's just, just taught, being educating people so that they can – and by the way, there's studies have shown that um, kids who um, get a better sex education uh, will engage uh, in – it doesn't – it's not a gateway drug to having sex. Yeah. You know, I, I actually I, – I, I'm a perfect example, actually, because in – when I was in first grade, I took into show and tell a book on how babies are made because my mother had taught us early, and we also had animals, so we knew about mating and things like that. I took a book in about how babies are made and did it and showed talked to my class about it in, in show and tell in first grade, and I was not having sex 
when I was 14. That is for sure. I don't think I maybe hugged a boy when I was 14. That was about it. <laughs> oh, boy, have times have changed, though, you know. <laughs> well, they uh, I don't know. They're saying that kids are having sex less than their generations before them nowadays. Yeah, like I said, I don't have that uh, kind of education to know what's what and all that stuff. But let's jump into some more uh, fun things that people are probably tuning in here for. Obviously, I mentioned you, you've been a part of Baywatch and Christine, and you've been up on 100 different projects, whether it be film and TV, besides the two biggies there. But uh, what was pop culture like for you? What were you into growing up in Connecticut? Oh, I didn't have a lot of exposure to um, movies or TV because I grew up in a small town of Cornwall, Connecticut. So 1,200 people, that's where I spent, um, you know, basically most of my youth. I was born in New York City, but I spent most of my youth in Connecticut. And um, so I didn't have a lot of pop culture. I remember that my mother restricted the TV a lot. So I, I remember I watched Happy Days. But, okay. and um, my favorite film was 101 Dalmatians at one time. But otherwise, oh, and also, um, you know, we in sixth grade or something, the, there was those magazines with the hot teen stars. So Leif Garrett and, um, uh, and, the, and Donny Osmond were big. And so it was kind of fun when I ended up on the Donny Osmond show when he had a talk show, the Donny Marie show. When I when he, they had a talk show, um, because you know we'd all been ooing and eyeing over them when I was in sixth grade. Oh geez, yeah, and people still, you know, people I know still love Donnie and Marie in all age categories, not every yeah. musical talent, but just it's almost like that the generation before. I think the Wayne Newton fans, where they just go nuts for you know Donnie and Marie. Well, they're both but, uh, they're two very, very, very nice people. I can say that from personal experience. Well, that's good. Before I jump in there, actually, I just hit my uh, non-working brain this afternoon. You're, you are big into not only the overpopulation and, you know, community help and all, but you're big into health. I know you had ran the triathlon out in Hawaii. I believe it was at 97, but you do a – health and fitness kind of thing with your podcast and different outlets like that. What can you tell me about the, what got you motivated into that kind of stuff? Um, I, well, I grew up in the country in Connecticut and my mother, since she restricted television or the boob tube, as she called it, uh, we either went outside and played um, or, and played sports or we read. So I, I love doing both those and I uh, love being outside. So I've always been uh, an athlete, but I, I'm now, I became a registered health coach, um, a certified health coach um, uh, a few years ago, and I have my own health coaching company where I, I help people uh, get their their lifestyle on track in terms of diet and exercise and sleep and um, by inculcating healthy habits one small step at a time. So um, I started my podcast with an Olympic athlete, Dotsie Bausch, which is about the benefits of a plant-based diet. It's called Switch for Good. Uh, switch, the the uh, digit four, and then good, all one word. And you can find it on any platform, any podcast platform. We've been um, well, doing it for two years now. 
Well, we're going to put the links for both your website where they can learn about the life coaching and the podcast and everything else in all formats and in the description form. But since you brought up your uh, co-host on, on the podcast, she actually just recently did a commercial about milk, correct? Uh, she did. She did the commercial about alternatives to milk. Yes. Uh huh. Exactly. Um, really, it was a commercial. She um, she won a silver for the United States in uh, track cycling at the London Games in 2012. And she also is a vegan, meaning that she doesn't eat any eat or wear or use anything that comes from an animal. And one of the things that really um, bothered her was that the Olympics were using uh, these they were sponsored by the dairy industry and they basically were trying to get people to believe that to be a good athlete you had to drink cow's milk and she knew that that wasn't true in fact she she knew that it actually could hinder your performance and so she uh, she has made several commercials some of which have played during the Olympics that are against um, against cow's milk as a health food. Well, like I said, if you want, folks want to check out more of this kind of thing and discussion, I will have links to both Miss Paul's website and the podcast. So make sure you check that stuff out. But what a fun stuff. And I joke with this, obviously. Some people will take it the wrong way. You mentioned the boon food growing up from your mom being restrictive of it. Say what? What led you to go into that particular show? Was it just an audition or? Uh, I was 28. I had been acting in Hollywood for 10 years. I'd been doing, I had done Christine and, and several other studio films and a lot of uh, television movies, which were big in the 80s. And um, in the early 90s, I was asked to audition for Baywatch. I didn't want to do a television series, but I decided, oh, well, I'll go in and audition because I don't want to I, you know, I want to pick my battles with my agent and say no to, you know, things that I really feel would I would do terrible. You know, so auditions are just I want to, it, it seemed like a fun audition so I could go in and do well. So I thought, well, we'll come to that bridge if, uh, if we if we get to it about whether or not I'm actually going to do a series. Um, but it turns out I um, I did well in the audition and they offered me the, the part I read with Hasselhoff. Actually, what's interesting is that I read they were looking for two parts to fill. One was the part that Pamela Anderson filled, and one was the part that Nicole Eggert filled. And I wasn't right for either of them. I was too old for um, Nicole and not didn't have that sexiness that Pamela's part required. So I, they really just called me in because they'd heard I was a good swimmer. One of the producers swam at the same pool I did, although I'd never met him. And he'd heard I was a very good swimmer. And I, and I was a good swimmer, and I had been a junior lifeguard. And I was an emergency medical technician at the time, actually. I'd been certified because my sister had suggested I get certified just so I could help my dad if something happened with him. She was a firefighter, and she thought it was important. She's my twin, so I do what I said. So I was, a, I was pretty – my background was pretty good to be a lifeguard on TV. Um, so they actually, uh, and they thought that I guess I was a good enough actress, and they um, and and they decided that they would write a part in for me. So they created the part of Stephanie Holden for me. Well, the other part of that story I heard too, and you uh, beat me to the punch as far as the producer and the pool and all that stuff was that I heard at least, and you can tell me if this is uh, right or wrong. 
Hasselhoff enjoyed you and wanted to hire you because you were taller. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. I appreciate you doing your homework. Um, yeah. yeah, that's what he, that's what he said. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's just funny. It's um, I I am tall, and I was taller than quite a few of the men in the show, actually. But I'm five ten, so I'm not hugely tall. But um, Passelhoff is six five, so he he did like having um, someone who was who was tall. The 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 um, women were, yeah, probably most of the women were quite a bit shorter than I. Now, was it true that they didn't want you per se? in a bathing suit for the show and more of a suit and tie kind of role at first? Um, actually, uh, what it was is that my I wasn't sure I wanted to be in a bathing suit and my manager didn't want me in a bathing suit. So we put it in, the, in my contract that I didn't have to wear a bathing suit, that I could wear the uniform. But after the first um, episode, I definitely did not want to be in a uniform wearing shoes and, and that crisp white, skirt and stuff no so uh, I ditched that and I I don't think I ever appeared in that uniform again maybe once that was it um so it was uh yeah yeah I was glad to get to the bathing suit there you go and work on our tan and everything else that goes with it but uh <laughs> the other project that I mentioned that most of our fans would remember you from is Christine were you a horror fan growing up at all? Like whether it be books you read or were you a fix? Other part of that, because you said reading was a big thing growing up uh, because of mom. Did you ever read mm. Stephen King's projects? No, I'd never read a Stephen King book because I did not like horror. Hadn't watched horror films. I uh, don't, yeah, really hadn't been exposed to that, but pretty much knew I didn't want to see horror films. And um, yeah, didn't read horror fiction either. So when I when I got the part, I, I read Christine, the book, and I liked it very much. He's a very good writer. And, and actually, since then, Stephen King has written one of my favorite books of all time, which is called A Different Seasons. It's called Different Seasons. It's four novellas, all of which have been turned into movies, by the way. Um, it's not no, – none of them are horror per se, but they're psychological thrillers. And, um, yeah, so I, I was, and I didn't know John Carpenter either, who was the director of Christine. I didn't know his work. Hadn't seen Halloween. Interesting enough. Now, and I know you've told this story before in other formats, whether it be podcasts, uh, regular interviews, TV, stuff. You actually had your twin sister dress like you, and you did, tried to do the whole switcheroo on set. What part of yes, the movie I was did. that? <laughs> That was at the end of the movie um, when we I was battling Christine the car in a a big uh, front loader thing. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> my my sister, who's the aforementioned twin sister, used to be uh, who used to be a firefighter. She um, she came to visit me in L.A. and I hadn't been in L.A. very long, so no one knew I had a twin. So we decided that we would pull a trick on the director, John Carpenter, and the makeup people and the, and the wardrobe people uh, and my co-star, John Stockwell, uh, were the only ones, and the, and the first AD, uh, the, sorry, the second AD, because the second AD is the one that brings the actors to and from the set. So um, the, they were the only ones who knew that my sister was on the set, and they dressed her up in my stunt double's clothes and did the same hair and makeup, and she walked on the set, said hello to John, 
um, uh, John Carpenter, the, the director, and proceeded to shoot the scene where, which was a close-up of the character's foot pressing the accelerator. And they actually shot it, and then I walked out on the set and said, John, have you fired me already? And uh, anyway, it was a great joke. John was a, a prankster himself, so I was able to get to get one in. Yeah, that's good to hear. I've heard that about John from other people we've talked to, uh, both uh-huh. on and off air. But uh-huh. final question for you is, and it has to do with Christina. I just read this this afternoon. Actually, why I was watching the movie, because I wanted to make sure I had everything set up you know, as far as my knowledge, depending on where the conversation went. Did you uh, not know how to do your hair when going for the audition and your roommate was involved with that? Yes, and you notice that in the, in Christine, my hair is all, like, curly and fluffy. I love Farrah Fawcett, which is very 80s, right, big hair. Um, mm-hmm. When I was, go, you know, when you get, offered a part, especially when you're young and you, you don't have a lot of um, credits, it, it takes a, many auditions to get through. You have to go through a process of attrition. Um, and, you know, the producers see you over and over again. You might read with an actor. Then the executives come and look at you. This is <laughs> – so um, at the last audition, the producer told my agent to, to, to get me to do something with my hair. I guess I wasn't, I didn't know anything about hair and makeup back then. I was 18 and it is, yeah, we just, in Connecticut, we didn't really care about those things. We cared more about, mm-hmm. you know, being in the environment and in nature and playing games. Um, so I, I, I talked to my roommate, Mary, who she, she used mousse, so I figured she knew what her hair was about, and she was going to college at the time, and she, uh, she taught me how to put my hair in rollers. Um, and, uh, but the day of the audition, she actually had to go to – she had an exam, so she was in, at UCLA. She was, so she wasn't there. I had to do it myself. So I washed my hair. I put my hair in curlers. I figure, ooh, I'm going to drive to the audition so my hair will be extra beautiful by the time I get there. So I park about a block away from the audition and pull the curlers out of my hair. And I had made a big mistake. That I, I guess she hadn't told me that you need to dry your hair before you put the curlers in. So my hair was still wet and very thick straight. It looked horrible. I walked into the audition and just immediately apologized that my hair looked so bad, but they, I guess they didn't really care because they cast me anyway. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, and, I'm, and it just crossed my mind, and how can I forget, and I know she had a bit part in the movie. Uh, yeah. Kelly Preston just recently passed away. D- did you have any contact or post uh, that project? No, I didn't. I didn't have any contact with, except for I saw her at an audition once at least once, maybe twice um, in the ensuing years. And she was always just so sweet and lovely. But during the shooting, we only had one scene. Well, we were in two scenes together, the big football scene, I guess, but it was totally different because she was on the field and I was off the field. So it was like we didn't, we didn't really, we didn't interact. I don't think our, our, our characters didn't have any lines together, but she was so lovely, uh, just a lovely, beautiful person, and it was really yeah. sad to hear that she passed so young. Never met the man or, any, or the family or anything, but much love to John and the kids and everything else yeah. like that right now. 
that's for sure. Yeah, I remember but when it, I was a kid that he he also lost a woman that he was with for a long time, who also to cancer. Do you remember that he was with a much older? I, I've woman. heard that story. Yeah, I remember that. It was sad, very sad. Oh. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a, you know they go through it not once but twice in your lifetime. You know, it's some, but yeah. I'm sure it's also something different too when it's the mother of your kids and everything else, like that bond that they had for the past 25 years. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but like I said, much love to the family and hope. You know, they can get through this. But anyway, I know you are also on social media, use Instagram a lot and all that fun stuff. What's the best way people can find you if they wish to uh, try to seek you out for whether it's the entertainment or the uh, health and fitness stuff? Um, AlexandraCoaching.com is my uh, wellness coaching business. Um, and then alexandrapaul.com is my acting website. Also a lot of personal stuff on there too, photos from family or activism and stuff like that. Um, and then I am on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, Alexandra Paul Official. I'm on Twitter, Alexandra underscore Paul. And I'm on Instagram, Alexandra underscore actress. Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for the time and Hopefully, down the line, we will speak again. Thank you so much. Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, all right? I need help. E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Oh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh, my God. Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being even keel or having extreme depression. Ah, oh, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my! Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hey out there in Radio Land, this is Amanda Verse, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. Love and marriage, love.
like a horse and carriage this i tell you brother